Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and this is a show about writing, for writers, for readers, and for anyone who harbours a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. We have on this show three central planks to our writing manifesto. One, to help you write more. Two, to help you write better. And three, to help you be happier as you do both of those things. And to that end, I sometimes look at all these first pages and give advice on how I think they could make them better. That's all stuff submitted by our listeners. Sometimes I uh, get other authors on the show and I have a little chat to them and ask how they got into writing stories and talk about stories. Sometimes I they're not even authors. Sometimes I've, I've got agents in and editors and publicists or even recently social psychologists or neuroscientists saying what is this thing the human brain that keeps making stories and uh, how can we get better at making stories sometimes i've had game makers come on and talk about the art of sort of tabletop role play and spontaneously coming up with stories round the table this kind of group this ancient kind of almost atavistic kind of I don't, I don't want to use the word ritual because that makes it sound actually too sort of forced and on rails, but this urge and enjoyment and cultural thing we do where we enjoy as human beings getting together and telling each other stories and making realities. And indeed, I have had on the show a uh, a, 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 a wizard, you know, a, someone interested in the history of magic and uh, someone who is interested in divination and knows a lot about that to talk about yeah the process of how magical elements lead into story making how we can use those things so I like having lots of different people from lots of different disciplines chatting about stories because it, it sort of touches everywhere I think I probably wouldn't have sort of someone on to talk about say the process of copywriting coffee machine manuals or something like that not that that isn't an important process but that's probably sort of outside of our purview but aside from that I'm pretty keen to cast a wide net because I think anything that can give us new strategies that can help us uh, push ourselves forward and grow as writers that can give us new insights that can give us new techniques anything like that to me has value Rather than just sort of, and, and look, there's some value to sort of retreading old ground, uh, returning to fundamentals, uh, chatting about those things and, and making sure we don't lose sight of some kind of core principles or building blocks or, you know, establishing a central assumptions. And I think, you know, going back and sharpening the saw on those things is always valuable to me. But I enjoy, you know, breaking new ground and doing stuff that, hasn't been discussed before or has seldom been discussed in interesting ways before on podcasts or in the uh, literature or the wider internet. Today's episode, as you can probably uh, tell from uh, my slightly sort of bouncing around across subjects and the occasional havering pause or indeed an um, a small vocal indication that I'm thinking, they'll cue to you to say, hey, sorry, Tim's thinking here. This is going to be uh, what is known in the trade, and I say the trade that earns me no money and is only plied by me um, 
the making podcasts of Death of a Thousand Cuts. This is going to be a writing ramble episode, which is just an unscripted episode where I don't even know what I'm going to talk about. I just switch the uh, mic on and have a chat with you, uh, partially because I took a week off last week, partially because I've been away, partially because I've just taught a writing retreat, uh, not last week where I was on holiday, but the week before. Um, partially because I've just got a lot to do this week and I've got a bunch of planned episodes coming up and I'd also like to sort of like write ones and I've got a big big project for this podcast coming up as well um but since today I've got a fairly big to-do list I I just wanted to do this without having to you know because otherwise I wasn't going to make one so I thought look I'll just chat to you I, I like doing these episodes because they're a chance for me to do a little audio diary uh i suppose some people would think that they're rather self-indulgent but i don't really like the term self-indulgent i think human beings mostly exist in a state of abject self-denial and this idea that doing things for ourselves and creating stuff and chatting with people is somehow i mean self-indulgent has got such a I've talked about this before, but it's got so, uh, and, and the reason I bring it up on a you know show about writing is not just to kind of create right at the beginning of the show a kind of like a elaborate um, apology for its existence. Although sometimes I feel you know sometimes I feel sort of slightly defensive because there's a lot of comments online about yeah, everyone's got a podcast now and especially a sort of uh, particular brand of sort of um, middle class biddy uh, white dude uh, has a podcast. And I feel a bit like, oh, you're talking about me, aren't you? You're, you're saying that's me and I'm somehow a douchebag for doing it. And I, I, I mean, who, who knows? Uh, I might be, but I think probably. And, and the reason I bring it up, sorry, just to get back, I'm going to open a lot of parentheses and not close them. The reason I bring it up is because I get a lot of writers, the emails I get, a lot of them are like people just asking whether they've got the right to write stuff. You know, do I have the right to, to create? Who am I to be doing this? Well, what a waste of time. It's kind of something for this rarefied breed of people who are writers who've got special skills. It's not for me. I, I, like, I'm, look, I might not be a great writer, but I can tell the difference between my writing and writing I like. And isn't it a bit self-indulgent? You know, there's so many things to be doing in the world for me to get, sit down and try and write a story about whatever it is I want to write a story about. So... That's the, one of the reasons I don't like self-indulgence, because I see how much pain the concept of it causes to lots of human beings. How, from this just like internalised social pressure, we don't create, because people might not like it. People might, and maybe even probably, will judge it. And if they don't judge it directly, if they don't directly look us in the eye and go, that shit and you're a bad person for making it, lots of people all the time are just launching broadsides you know these sort of wide cannonades uh harsh and mild about people who create people you know who are up themselves people who are big-headed people who are pretentious people who you know bad poets people oh look at that. i saw someone open mic and they read their dreadful poetry oh look oh just you know people taking the piss out of people who create all the time People mocking the preciousness of people who make music or art. People mocking the pretentiousness of people who paint or create, you know, visual art or performance art. Oh, aren't they wankers? All these things. There's there's a constant sort of slow parade of the damned past our windows of 
people in society, some of them writers themselves, sometimes people who know better, going, isn't it shit and twee and precious to try? And then on the other hand, right, if you go onto uh, a social media site like Instagram, you know, like I get that judgmental feeling. Don't get me wrong, because I see people just posting what feel to me like rather sort of glib truisms or just nonsense going, you know, with these like aphorisms about today's a new day, create your day, create your art. And I'm like, or whatever, you know, just something sort of meaningless and Instagram poets sort of putting these little pictures online with what feel to me sort of like rather twee maxims about how we should be kind to each other and you know stuff that and and, and tens of thousands of people loving it or you know just a picture of some in, impossibly beautiful person by a pool saying sort of seize the day or so all of these things where you know there is a wave of commodified positivity i get that as well you know you don't have to talk to me about um sort of being overly positive or how draining that can feel or how inauthentic that can feel you know as someone who you know suffers from and continues to manage and battle and be challenged by mental health issues be it depression or more frequently anxiety I'm not some sort of air punching twee hippie-ish kind of glib person who doesn't see like the real barriers that people face so what do we do when we got got that? Like on one hand, there's all this pressure. Is it? It's a wonder that anyone writes anything at all, right? When there's this whole these great phalanxes of people lining up on one hand to say, you know, you're a dickhead for trying. What sort of what sort of muppet? sits down and and tries to write a book and particularly you right maybe there's some sort of weird genetic freaks who can do it but particularly you like why would it be why of all the people would it be you what in your life has has led you to believe that you just got you know hundreds of hours to pour into you know starting to write a novel which Almost certainly, the idea that you're just going to sit down and write your first novel, and it's going to, you know, you're going to knock it out of the park, and people are going to go, oh, "I'll buy that." That's bananas, right? That's why would you? Why on earth would you think that? To sit down and try and do anything, especially something that doesn't conform to, you know, maybe what you, is, that you can't already see out there. You know, stories that aren't don't look like stories that already exist, or stuff that doesn't fit into the genres that are doing well, weird stuff that sits between genres, weird stuff that's about stuff that's personal to you, that is almost like in your own... Lang- I mean, the, the 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 languages that our heart speaks, and, I, I, you know, I'm, again, like I can hear, feel the judgment coming up in me as I use terms like that, which is obviously a metaphor, but... You know, the languages our heart speaks. That's the kind of thing that used to always get me really sort of peed off when I'd hear like a teacher saying it when I was learning creative writing. The languages that our heart speaks. I was like, what is that? Talk to me about like grammar. Talk to me about adverbs and how we can reduce them. Talk to me about how to arrange sort of like 
you know, how many people in this room can point to the main clause in a sentence? How many of them can point to the uh, subordinate clause? How many of them understand what an ab- adverbial clause is? Uh, b- because these are the, you know, these are the tools we're using. Why do we feel like we're above knowing, like, you know, anyone who is doing sort of like manual work, who's doing basic kind of like building things, making things, they don't think they're above learning the terms for what their tools are called, uh, what the stuff they're dealing, you know, what their materials are called. That's not, you know, having, you know, we call it derisive, we get derisory and call it jargon but having specific words for these things and knowing it so we can have this shared vocabulary and we can talk about things quickly and also so we've got ways of analyzing because like learning these words also gives you a sort of a, a, a lens with which to chop stuff up it gives you this kind of heuristic that allows you to very quickly it creates ultimately efficiency right because i can talk about adverbs and i, I you know there's a class of words there and we understand something to do with their function. And I know like when you get deep into grammar in any language, it gets super gnarly and there's edge cases and it's it, it, it it's not as clearly defined as that. But for these kind of rules of thumbs, for these kind of like basic heuristics that allow us to talk about these things, it's super useful. Right. And I, I always you know, got frustrated and not in a kind of snobbery. You're not in a snobbish way about like, oh, gosh, the country's falling apart because someone used a greengrocer's apostrophe. I think that can often be kind of exclusionary language. It can, you know, you're just one step away from going, oh, God, like, why don't people read the classics these days? Why don't people understand kind of references to Greek tragedy? Why can't, why isn't that our shared? And, And that was always, especially, you know, in Britain, that that knowledge of certain kind of cultural bellwethers uh from the past was always a way of uh of mar- you know of, of of marking and maintaining the class system really it was it was something that you learned in public school so you know anyway i'm going sort of slightly off piste here which is you know part of the uh how a, a ride and rumble works but i just got frustrated not that i could by the way not that i went to public school or could you know find my way around most greek myth i i don't know them haven't really read them i mean picked up some stuff by osmosis in passing like fragmentary but and i don't i don't really give a shit to be honest like i great if you do that's lovely for you but it is not really my wheelhouse anyway the point being i'm this is a long justification of me saying the language of the heart right sometimes like the lang but i the reason i picked that is because like it's almost kind of like a it's embarrassing. It's like almost like baby language. It's almost like twin talk, you know, like very young twins who like talk to each other and this kind of babbling. They make their own sort of uh, personal language that they speak between this kind of, I suppose it's probably the term like idioglossia if we were being like language analysts about it. Um, or, you know, that deeply embarrassing thing, the kind of baby talk that couples use with each other sometimes. Uh just these like idiolects, idiolects, that's probably what it is, isn't it? Um, these ways of talking. I, I think like when you write, there's some novels that you write that are, you're using this deeply personal language of your own heart, this way of seeing the world that doesn't, is not really what everyone else sees or can feel like that. You are 
sharing the way the world and your feelings talk to each other. I'm not really sure. Does that make sense to you? Does that, do you get what I'm saying? It's it's like I don't want to use a cliche. I don't want to use you know cliches, but it, it, it's just this. When you write a novel and you really give yourself to it, and do you really allow yourself to take risks? You reveal something about how you see the world, and in doing that, readers can sort of reverse engineer the depths of your heart and your deepest secrets and your assumptions and who you are and what you fear. And you can't, they can't do that if you just write, if you just write generic stuff, if you borrow voices that already exist. You know, there's, I don't know if you listen to much slam poetry, but when I came up in the performance poetry scene in England, and I specifically, I suppose I was doing, I thought of what I was doing as either performance poetry or stand-up poetry, because I did a lot of comedy in it, and I did stand-up in between. But what always struck me about, like, the American slam style of poetry, where you've got three minutes where you're judged with scorecards, um... And where the topics tended to be more serious and they tended to be more social justice led than in Britain. Although not exclusively. I mean, Britain did a lot. We do do a lot of sort of political poems, a lot of sort of agitprop style uh, rants against uh, those in power. But in America, it was there was a there's a particular slam voice that was always done like a cadence a way, uh, a register, types of words that were used, a kind of style of delivery um, that meant, despite slam poetry purporting to exist as this thing that um, was a sort of forum for underrepresented voices and for challenging the kind of like uh, white male straight cis uh, uh homogeneity of the of the media you know like the overwhelmingly right-wing media uh there was something about slam i think particularly about the very brutal system of making it a competition a contest where it commodified those sentiments that i those ideologies it commodified those uh viewpoints it commodified, it, and still does, commodifies, it, it, it cannot, if you, as soon as you make it a competition, as soon as you make it a hierarchical competition, as soon as you make it, you essentially replicate the structures of a kind of capitalist competition-based system, right? As soon as you do that, it inevitably becomes this ruthlessly winnowing process judged by the audience and slam prides itself on you know you don't have to know poetry you don't have to have this kind of education you don't have to get classical re- references it should be open to everyone um which off which you know sometimes means the audiences slam audiences haven't seen poetry before so they don't know uh, what cliche is in terms of poetry cliches what, what ultimately happens and has happened and does happen and i suspect will continue to happen across slam poetry is that there is a narrowing of style uh, as people start to work out what gets audiences on side, what wins slams. Um, n- naturally, stuff that doesn't 
doesn't get seen right um there is a fairly uh fairly a, a rapid uh, winnowing of topics as well as people realize that they're the most successful slam poems follow a, a sort of three minute format where they are personal where they tell a story of personal oppression or struggle and where the person in the final minute comes out defiantly against that they don't have to contain rhyme in fact almost none of them do um they don't have to show huge linguistic in inventiveness in fact most of them don't because uh that kind of gets in the way of the, the sort of authenticity of the voice there's a cadence and a tenor uh, of the actual delivery that and where you leave the pauses that has become sort of standard across the entire field there is a there, i mean a, a concept con the content the style all of it has become this thing of sort of strident self i mean and i'd say also it's always very slick uh it's all you know so it's delivered you don't make a mis you don't make a mistake you don't uh it's often sort of a loud uh declarative sometimes hectoring or admonishing voice sometimes it's uh you know the poet is shouting at a uh, putative or uh, nominal sort of uh, oppressor who isn't present um and it sounds like i'm I, I don't i'm not trying to be sort of i'm not trying to belittle it or pretend i don't understand why there's a need for that <laughs> forum to exist what the kind of like wider social implications of that but it basically means a uh it's commodified and packaged and promoted one very, very specific style of poetry. And it commodifies marginalisation. It encourages people to perform that to the extent that you'll see some white middle class uh, poets going and doing pieces and it's like... Uh, and it's like, hey, here's a piece, a piece about me fighting about back against oppression about my, my, my lisp. And and I'm not saying that you know speech impediments and stuff aren't things, or you know that that aren't things that are real issues in people's lives. But they use exactly the same strident tone. Exactly, it just becomes very striking when they're using exactly the same tone, exactly the same style, exactly the same righteous anger that somebody is doing when they're talking about a ch their own childhood of surviving sexual assault it, that complete lack of diversity of style and structure just becomes very stark when we are suddenly have n no degrees of talking about something extremely serious um and something that's not you know, I think I'm sort of safe in saying not at the same level. And there's no real space in slam poetry for doubt, for kind of bits of 
gentle self-criticism. For joy, happiness, silliness, silliness, which is part of being a human being, part ways of being that aren't, what, what if I'm shy? What if I don't want to shout at people? What if I assume that the audience I'm speaking to are as intelligent, if not more than me? What if I assume that the audience, uh, what if I assume good faith on the part of the audience? What if I want to write something where I'm asking a question rather than giving an answer? What if I want to assume a emotion other than anger? Not that anger isn't a legitimate emotion to express. I think it absolutely is. I think it's an important one that we can express in art. I think it is uh, very often uh, super legitimate. I'm not meaning to police people's right to express anger or make the audience feel uncomfortable, although I think that it's such a kind of ritualised form now that um, expressing anger never makes the audience feel uncomfortable, except one of the things it does is it makes people feel mildly uncomfortable and then gives them a way to release that discomfort which is by marking the poem highly it's it's it it's this it uses the same psychology that we see in street magicians right who get gather people round and then before they do their final tricks say make some statement to the effect that like anyone watching this you know you know I, this is how i make my living uh after I've done this trick, I'm going to pass around a hat. I do. I am not a beggar. I do not want coins. I want notes. I want things you can fold. This is, you know, I have spent years doing this. Uh, if you don't want to contribute, if you don't want to support me, go away now. It, it, it creates an atmosphere. I've seen it done in, in various uh, ways and often with very little humour. And that bag pitch, that hat pitch, which I've heard, street magicians and street performers talk about is the psychology of that is the entire thing and the set this is what happens in sort of when you super when you create a competitive system and you commodify emotion and people you know th this idea that you're the, the, the poetry is something very intimate but we're going to turn it into a performance thing where we're going to get given a score and there's lots of money involved you know there might be prizes which might affect a poet's ability to earn next year then and i think it's probably true of all sort of novels and poetry right we we're, we're put feeding them into this capitalist system where we compete for prizes we compete for audience we compete for being selected in the first place by an editor who've got a limited slate if you self-publish you're competing for eyeballs you're competing for reviews from different people you're competing for being featured on newsletters or whatever being talked about on podcasts like this one how so when i talk about like the this language of the heart and writing something very small and intimate or very large and intimate the problem is we've got a system that massively rewards counterfeiting that massively rewards people uh not not making it up exactly but it massively rewards the performance of vulnerability or the performance of i'm sort of trying to choose my words very carefully because i you know it could sound uh, expressed infelicitously like i'm saying everyone who goes and performs a poem or writes a book about something 
where they're vulnerable or talking about injustice they faced in their life is somehow lying or or making it up or being disingenuous. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we have a system that as soon as you start rewarding that, or as soon as you get a culture around things that starts pushing for that, then it there's certain modes that people are forced into, are encouraged into, that we're prepared to listen to people in. And then there are a bunch of modes that we're not. That, you know, a po- poems rarely go viral where they're talking about some sort of small beautiful part of somebody's life something that made them happy sometimes but like when they do when there's kind of like a quirky funny poem when there's a poem about something that makes someone happy when there's you know just kind of like a silly clever poem those tend to be and I'm sort of generalizing here and I'm willing to be sort of told wrong but those tend to be ones by kind of white male poets because they're allowed to do them and one's about oppression ones about uh elements of marginalization are then those are the ones that are shared by women and people of color and uh gay people and trans poets and all those kind of things and there's a sort of unwillingness to and but you know in case you're going oh well tim's saying why can't i do a big protest poem i do do protest poems and i understand about we can get into like rhetorical authority if you want i understand that like these it's if you've been through if you've experienced marginalization if you've if you've suffered at the hands of someone you are much a much more compelling authority to talk about it what i'm saying is that that isn't the only part of your life and that what slam poetry has done and i I, you know i'm harping on this because i think it speaks to a broader thing about what we can write at all is make it it's collapsed the range of experiences that poets are permitted to talk about slam doesn't encourage us talking about little things slam doesn't encourage us talking about silly things it doesn't encourage us telling anecdotes it doesn't encourage joy because those are the things that don't win slams against some sort of serious protest or disclosure of um pain and artists are encouraged and incentivized to perform pain in a very uh, ritualized pre-approved safe homogenized voice that is consistent the voice and style is consistent when i've been in australia you know watching in melbourne the performance of somebody you know talking about their childhood growing up as a korean immigrant in australia they use the same voice the same accent the same pauses the same stresses the same content the same in in terms of the structure um and the same register as a you know middle class white guy in america talking about his experiences of marginalization or any like all the poets across every country i've seen have this one voice and i don't think that's serving people I, i think that's what that is doing you know, especially when someone, you know, like, you know, this Korean poet was doing a poem about his his dad's voice. You know, and this parent language and all these kind of like anxieties that come out of it. It seems to me that these things are not being served. What is... Do you, do you understand what I mean when we talk about the, the way in which 
the tastemakers, what the audiences want, can shape, and I think in cases deform, what kind of art we produce. Who you're like? How are you motivated to write stuff if you don't think anyone will like it? If you don't think there's a way of there's not the right. Steve Aylett, when I interviewed him for my book, We Can't All Be Astronauts, saying the problem about like, originality is people don't have the right shaped receptors in their heads for it. Like they might not even they they might not even you know you might not even comprehend you you can sometimes just process something that's original or divergent you know that is somehow disruptive from what's expected as as wrong as a mistake as a naive as a failure it doesn't fit the criteria that you've gone for i know that like lots of you know writers especially sort of writers who aren't uh you know, writers who like non-Western writers. I know the East-West generalization is infelicitous to be to to be sure, but like where you're not writing within the traditions and cultural assumptions of the country you're publishing in, you have to do a lot more work, right? Because people go, well, what, I don't know what this is. I don't. This story shape is wrong. Well, maybe it's not wrong. It's just different. It just looks different to the stuff you've been used to. These expectations and our ideas of what, like, what's what's right, and our, our ways of policing stuff and saying this is good, this is bad, I think can be hugely, hugely destructive. And 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 to get back to what I was talking about, this strange, quiet language of the heart, it can, it can just feel like you're sending your child out to war, right? When you truly follow what's inside of you as a writer when you if you i mean when you most of us don't even do it right we we spend so long hammering out our craft on the sort of battering it on the anvil of public opinion until it reaches some kind of acceptable shape could you imagine like what would it look like for you if you were writing stuff that was absolutely how you see the world and what's in your heart. How, like, how would that read? And how would it feel if you showed it to people and they were all like, this is shit, or I don't get this? And of course, how validating would it be if you wrote something that just felt like you saying, fuck it? fuck it i don't care i'm just writing something for me i get this i get one shot at being alive and if i don't and if i just suppress all my ways of being human to try and please other people i'm not gonna what's the what was the fucking point how validating would it be if you did if you just wrote this thing and it connected and people were like that's me you're hey i'm out here too you know like a a series of little points of light going, you know, windows lighting up all across a city in, in tower blocks here and here and here, of, eh, slowly across the kind of map of, of, of the country at night. You see these little torches lighting up, these little beacons, these other people like you, and you think, realise I'm not, I'm not alone. I don't know. Like, I think some people... The thing that's in their heart, and I, I think I've talked about this before, the thing that's in their heart, the authentic, and I, 
I think authenticity is this really complicated, problematic, fetishized term that um, might not really exist. But sometimes it's useful. But understand, I, I, I understand. I know that it's not simple as that. But, but you know, it's hard. I think I'm talking about this because I'm I'm working on my. I, I taught at a retreat not last week, but the week before. A bunch of uh, sort of sixth form sixth formers, and they were super great. It was just a pleasure working with them. It was a pleasure being away. I always have a bit of a crash after I do one of those a writing retreat. I come back to the world and I realise I'd really missed my daughter. I re- I just I don't, folks like I I don't you if you're a parent you'll know if if you're not then I don't mean to be sort of one of those tedious prats about it but I there's something about being a dad and spending a lot of time with my daughter. I, I suspect it's just lots of hormones and neurotransmitters and stuff but when i'm i get like a physical pain when i'm not hanging around with her and um when i came back i felt really unsettled by how much she changed in just sort of five days i don't like being away i could never be that's why i don't do as many performances as i used to because i just i i don't want to i i don't want to miss her and i've taken time off work to just sort of be home and look after her and it's terrifying the thought of her you know growing up and going to school and not needing me anymore in the same way but of course that's what if i do my job right she won't you know that's that's the plan that's the hope but um yeah it's tricky it's hard i don't ever want to be one of those nothing's too good for my little princess sort of proprietary fathers who uh, thinks that they own their daughter i hope that she kind of gets enough confidence to to fly you know fly the nest and be a wonderful happy independent person but my goodness yikes it's scary being a dad anyway i went and taught this week of, of kids who i guess are the, you know you know 16 17 are kind of at the big no looking at universities and they're at the big at the end of that kind of childhood and it was great and it was inspiring and they put so much work in and they were really supportive of one another and they it's just incredible seeing groups come together over that week because they didn't you know they didn't all necessarily know each other and it's really inspiring to work with writers and it reminded me of why i do this which is creating something that has not existed before the joy of making stories the joy of making poetry the joy of making words do stuff that they weren't designed to do right because they i mean they weren't designed they've just sort of grown up around us words making words as jay-z says in uh, decoded a poet is somebody who makes words work harder than they usually do great definition right um and that's what people were doing they were experimenting they were taking risks they were willingly falling flat on their faces to to grow to kind of do those micro abrasions in the muscles that make the body grow back stronger um i'm reading a great book on learning at the moment which talks all about this idea of like deliberate practice and how doctors it's been sort of demonstrated who've been practicing for 20 years are demonstrably worse at their job than ones who are two or three years out of medical school partially because this sort of Malcolm Gladwell 
esque idea that you do ten thousand hours of practice and then you get and then you'll be an expert. Something isn't true. It's bollocks, really. Um, or it's got to at least be deliberate. You can't just do something over and over. I mean, any of you who've been driving for a while will know. You know, drivers often get to sort of twenty years and go, "Oh, it's good when I pass my test. I'm shit now." Like you can be an experienced driver and. Um, and get worse if you're not pract- if you're not deliberately practicing things and, and working on what you're bad at. Um, then the skills that you develop will atrophy. Doing something within your comfort zone automatically doesn't make you any better. And so these, you know, these young writers who were m- making an effort and sort of giving each other feedback as well. That's another thing that the book's saying is really important. These kind of like components of getting better at something is sort of the deliberate practice is about sort of setting yourself a goal working at something regularly at the edge of your comfort zone you know do, doing stuff that is slightly harder so you have to then think about new strategies you have to develop new ways of working all the time you've got to be working working out new schema new ways of working new strategies new techniques you need to be constantly looking how you can push that edge a little bit further a little bit further you don't work so much you get discouraged because the other thing it says you need is sort of like uh, feedback and motivation you need motivation you need to feel like it's worth it and then to come back and like think about my own work and I have to be honest with you sometimes I go well what is my motivation for doing this I don't want to sort of be a misery guts about it but and it's you can sound like a sulker and I think there's like a a tone with how we talk about our books where we're supposed to always be positive and I you know I actually got I actually got told off for doing a tweet where I said oh like I'm not sure how my book's doing I my new book the ice house I was like oh it'd be really good if people could support it and I actually got told off by my publishers who said you know try and be a bit more I understand it's fine to be but try and be a bit more positive you know and maybe you know and maybe I I you know and I I got to admit like as someone with sort of mental health issues um I I my judgment is not always perfect and sometimes it's colored by sort of the things I feel inside but writing is a hugely precarious thing to do as a career for most of us unless you're independently wealthy from another source or you put a book out that did so well that uh, whether your ones after that do well is kind of immaterial and it's scary asking yourself to what extent do I want to push myself you know to what extent will I be rewarded for trying to write well or good or trying to write what's in my heart and I want to say to you like when I did this week one thing it reminded me of that there is inherent value there is inherent dignity there is inherent there are inherent rewards in trying your best and pushing yourself as a writer whether you get published or not a few things that I kept coming back to in the week one you know because I just say stuff to people like am I if you've never been on writing retreat with with me and and almost certainly haven't maybe we should do a death of a thousand cuts one at some stage although a death of a thousand cuts writing retreat does sound like a slasher uh slasher a flick scenario doesn't it it does sound like everyone's gonna get murdered in the country but you know they're just a continuation of this really i don't think there's any there's don't think there's any gap between my 
writing teacher persona when I'm on writing retreat and how I talk here. And so things kind of come out and I remind myself of stuff and when I'm talking to people, they're sort of, I'm often, you know, the messages are to me. And one thing I ended up saying was like, you don't know. Writing will, giving yourself to writing, giving your whole heart to writing, to creating, will give you gifts, but you don't get to choose what those gifts are. That's not how gifts work, right? You don't get, it's it's rude to say, oh, these are the, you know, if you're going to, if you, you're going to give me gifts, this is what I want. This is what you have to give me. That, those are demands. Those aren't gifts. If you give yourself to writing fully, if you give yourself to your craft fully, it will give you rewards. You just don't know what they'll be. They might not be the ones that you aspire to or hope to. But they will be rewards nonetheless. Now, my rewards for giving myself to writing have been I've been a wife and daughter. I met my wife through, you know, she read one of my books. And thus, that's how my daughter, you know how babies are made. That is a much better, more profound thing than any number of book awards, any number of bestsellers, any num amount of acclaim or being on a tour. I would not swap my daughter for anything I mean there's a I can make a, a joke here but I'm not going to because I mean it sincerely I mean I know it's an obvious thing but it's true like writing isn't the be all and end all and the sort of self-discovery you get through writing and the weird things and all the friends I've made along the way the real yeah the real the real writing prize was the friends I made along the way but it's true right it's true it's true it's true I can't stop this now I don't know if I'll you know I don't know if I'll ever get another book published I don't know if anyone's going to want the ones I'm writing at the moment I've got this non-fiction book I want to write about anxiety I'm supposed to write a book pitch where I tell say what the chapters are going to be in advance I don't fucking know I I have to make a decision to throw myself into it and then I'm I have full faith from you know having done this podcast and searched different you know guests have on it that i will find people and stuff will start to come together for me and i will make discoveries but you have to commit and that is a huge financial risk to me because nobody might want to read it right so it's terrifying when i'm you know finishing up this goblin book and I, I read some of it on the retreat actually to the group and they seemed to really like it so i'm that was really exciting and motivating because it's the first time i've shared it sort of with strangers out loud re you know reading it and they seem to really dig it and they really got it as well um and i was like holy shit i might be onto something and it needs a lot more work but that's exciting to me would it sell anything i don't know would a publisher buy it i don't know don't know any of these things. The career side of writing is so weird. And uh, as writers, we're sort of encouraged not to talk about it too much or kind of like give this front, right, about how it's going. Because, you know, talking negatively about it might increase the kind of like death spiral of your career. But you can write regardless right and, and this is what i'm sort of saying to myself as well but if you're whatever you're working on 
be it a novel, be it... And I'd say this is the kind of idea of deliberate practice, by the way, just to return to it. It does imply, to me at least, that doing writing exercises and finding mentors and finding a writing group are... And, and you know, of course I see this because it fits with my paradigm and what I've been saying. Uh, so, you know, feel free to take what I'm saying with a pinch of salt. But finding good people who can support you and will read your work and give you feedback, essentially, if you're going to grow then this kind of model suggests you need feedback. You need to know how you're doing so you can adjust and make improvements. You're going to need that. So if you're just working on your novel on your own and you're not seeking out other writers and sharing work, um, then you're going to struggle. If you're not doing writing exercises and stuff that tests you and stuff that pushes you into new areas, that makes you write in new styles, then you're going to struggle because you're just, you're just, you're just trying to produce the thing you're doing the it's like just going up and trying to perform a play having not done any warm-ups not had done any acting classes not getting together and just trying different roles you know along alongside not workshopping stuff just going oh, i'll just read it off this script what's the chances that that's going to be your optimal performance if you want to push yourself and do really well and i'm not saying that the market will reward you right like i'm not saying that a lot of readers just don't really give a shit they don't don't give a they don't care about the pros being particularly good they don't care and that's fine they're they're entitled to not care but the question is do you and, and does it matter to you whether you put your do your best you know when you look back at your work are you going to go well i did something that most that 90% of readers didn't call me out on. Is that good enough for you? I don't know. Like, I, I don't know whether people who, you know, have kind of incredibly best-selling books, whether they do look back and go, well, it was a bit, you know, it's a bit shit, maybe I could have done better, or whether they just see that ubiquity as... I, I, and I, I'm very conscious of not wanting to sound bitter here. Like, things can be written for different audiences and different purposes. I'm just saying, like, what... What do you care? What do you care about? That's the thing is, it's got to be the, these internal goals. But I think you know, is you don't if you are writing something and trying to write this incredibly kind of like fine arch prose because you want sort of a few kind of musos or a few literary critics to kind of applaud or to get a certain prize or something. If that matters to you, that's all right. Although I'd suggest you sort of shift your goals back to being internal, and you you make decisions about what the quality, what level of quality you want to achieve, rather than these things that can be influenced by all sorts of outside factors. And that's fine. But if also you just want to like reach a big audience and people to love it, that's fine as well. Although again, I would suggest you kind of shift back inwards and you think about what you love because you can't con totally control those other things. And I, I'm. Think thought a lot about like V. Schwab coming on the show and her talking about how when she kind of like gave she was writing her second novel and freaking hating it and then just decided to write something just for her that was like almost like a kind of guilty pleasure and how that suddenly connected with loads of or, or, with like loads of readers who loved it but she'd written it just for her thinking I'm not I'm not going to be a writer now basically so I don't so I don't care woohoo <clears throat> it was her kind of like so long suckers novel. Um, and it connected and how incredibly validating of course we'd all love to do that I'd love to be able to just suddenly go here's me I'm not going to hide myself anymore and the whole world goes Tim we've been waiting for you come in I, I, and then and then I have a bestseller of course I'd love that uh, I, I'm not sure you can be quite so um, 
I'm not sure you can be kind of completely calculating about it, unfortunately. Uh, and there's some luck that comes into it as well. And there's also you, what's in your heart happening to sync up with what with the world, you know. You might have stuff in your heart that just doesn't sync up with the world, that the world doesn't understand. And I want to tell you that's all right and that you're a good person. And I want to tell you what I told everyone there, which I sincerely believe, which is that there's no level of literary success. There's no level of praise. There's no level of sort of shiny covers. There's no level of number of books you can have signed. There's no number of awards. There's no number of great reviews. There's no level of events that can change the essential fact, can make you any more worthwhile. And if you are doing this because you don't feel like you're okay, you don't feel like you're worthwhile, you don't feel like you matter, then I want to say to you that you do. And if you look to writing to, to fill that hole, it won't. You'll just be shifted to a position where the thing that you are banking on turned out to not work and now what the fuck do you do oh and you've got a book to write that you're now not as motivated to write because you know it's not going to make you a better a, a person who's okay in fact now you feel like a massive fraud a terrified fraud i want to say to you, you, you you're enough and you're you're good and and then just by virtue of being a human being you're kind of wonderful and you're unique you you're the only version of you and this life is that you're living is is the only one that's existed in the universe that's just that's not like mystical bullshit that's just a fact right and and so when you then if you and then if you can and then people resist right people resist that with this terror no because if i believe that am i not right i might not write if i like what if i like myself i might not write isn't that crazy I mean, it's literally crazy, right? It's just men mental illness. That's what it does. It lies to you. It tricks you. It it makes you take the outstretched hand of friendship and try to nail it to the table. But I think there is an inherent dignity in writing to make something that didn't exist. I'm... You may spend a whole life worrying about money and grinding to have enough to keep a roof over your heads. You may have a life of constantly paying a landlord and never owning your own place, never being able to stay in one place. You may have a life of deep stress. You may have a life of being ignored uh, creatively. You may have a life of not finding readers. You may have a life of being shunned by editors and agents. I can't control those things for you. I wish I, oh God, I wish I could. You know, I wish I could say to you, I could give you this like route and say, this is how you're going to make it. The, I, I can, if you do step one, step two, step three, you will find your audience. Anyone telling you that is mistaken at best. At worst, they're a fucking liar. But if you write for you, and you can, you know, you can, I, people say, oh, you know, do, you can, oh, why don't you write and then you do a day job? Well, that's two jobs you're now doing. You'll burn out. You'll exhaust yourself. You'll collapse potentially. But you could, you know, you could do work part time or you could just not write so much and just kind of write as something that you do on the side. But what I want to say to you is 
if you write for you and you challenge yourself and do these different things and uh bt dubs don't forget that i've got my um uh weekly writing workshop what weekly weekly writing workout email um that you can sign up to on my website if you just like search if you just google tim clare weekly writing workout every friday i put out a new 10 minute creative writing exercise that you can do and i try to make them challenging and interesting and ways of doing exactly what i talked about this kind of deliberate practice this kind of ways that push you into writing in ways you wouldn't and give you a kind of not an easy win but a quick win a way to have done something to have uh, uh, i'd say like a, a, a an easy and quick uh step forward a way of just moving forward to feel like you've done something that week um i i put the email out every friday uh, it's getting very popular now. People say they enjoy it. Uh, you can either do them on that week or you can save them up and do them all in a big bunch. But I would suggest doing you know, at least one a week. When you work on these things and you make the goals internal and you find your community, your sangha, you know, you, you reach out to other people. Um, then, like I say, I think that there's an inherent dignity to it. I think there are. It will give you gifts. They won't be the ones you expect, but it will give you gifts. When you look back, you'll go, oh. You know, I, I never dared. I wanted writing to give me the right not to have a real job and to feel okay about myself, like I, like my life wasn't a complete waste. And it has certainly allowed me to not have a real job, and I really, really appreciate that. But... The fact that by roots uh, diverse and circuitous, it's and I've ended up with a daughter. I would never have dared to dream to ask for something so wonderful. It's just better than anything I could have asked for. Um, but I think if you if you can work at your writing on a way that makes it about you, it's so it's hard, you know, pitching stuff and. You know, putting stuff in front of editors and agents and saying, do you like it? You know, we, or, or in front of readers and saying, do you like it? You know, with the best will in the world, you feel like you're giving away some of your sovereignty. You know, you're you're saying, is it okay? Is it okay? Have I done all right? And that person has a lot of power. Um, and it's scary, it's scary, or I find it scary anyway. But I'm... For all the difficulties and the, you know, I had really bad anxiety last week and I'm sort of a bit better this week. But for all the sort of difficulties of it, when I look back and I look at what I've got out of writing, I can't, I could never do anything else. I, it's just, it's, you know, some bits have been like a kind of ordeal, but you can learn from that. It's not what you expect, but it's sometimes... It's it's better than what you expected. There were two quotes that ended up being sort of repeated across the writing retreat. Um, that became kind of like kind of elite motifs for the uh, the week. The first being the central struggle of all art is to speak the truth without stating the obvious. And the second was uh, is, a, is an Emerson quote. 
And I might be paraphrasing here, but it's something to the effect. The way to write is to throw your body at the mark when your arrows are spent. I think that's what I'm going to be trying to do this week is that moment of stalling, that moment of doubt, that moment of failure, that moment of absolutely running out of all the resources you thought you had. <laughs> that moment where you just go, <laughs> like, just berserker the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the target. Just like, fuck you. <laughs> that, I think that that is one of the, it, it, that's where growth happens, right? Or it's where you get permanently expelled from your archery club but it's fun and you know it's not an adventure unless there are dragons it's not an adventure unless there's a there are doubts that our heroes will prevail and some of us don't and some of us will perish in the battle and there is no shame in that they if you do this and in the end you decide it's not for you, then I think there's, you know, there's a there's an honour and a dignity in that as well. I just want to say, you know, like I, you're writing the more you write it, I get all this. I'm still getting feedback from all the people who are doing the doing my eight week course, the Couch to 8K Writing Bootcamp, saying with such. And just always evincing this huge surprise that they can write. Oh my gosh, I don't know where this is coming from. Wow, look what I've written. I, I'm i sort of not hating writing. I've heard that. Like li- The reason I get evangelical is because I've heard that now from people like literally hundreds of times. To the extent I'm like, I may be onto something here. We may all have these sort of similar sort of like mental blocks that we just put in place that are just bollocks at the end of the day and you and just kind of burn off like so much morning fog when we expose them to the to the sunlight of a little bit of effort and a little bit of self-belief so but I think that's going to be it now actually for my my writing ramble I think I've I don't, don't want to sort of reach for sort of extra profundity on top of that. Um, I think anything after this will sort of end up being a, a, a mild, damp squib. Um, but I hope that that's sort of been interesting or helpful for you. And I just, you know, I just want to encourage you wherever you are with your writing to at least today set a timer for 10 minutes and either free write or make you know make a, a list of imaginary pub names or whatever just set yourself a little target to do something and make sure you're reading fiction and non-fiction because that always that's the inspiration part the breathing in the you know you're you're if you want to write writing is a kind of breathing out and the breathing in is reading and making notes and and just accept that the way the way to to write the way to get to get to get to the work you want is through a succession of anything worth doing is worth doing badly 
just you know put down your your shitty kind of like half formed drafts and then we can you can slowly start massaging them into shape it's going to be all right okay right have a lovely writing week i've got some uh, live shows to record this week and uh, hopefully uh, an interview as well and i'm looking forward to all that but just have a have a fantastic week and i'm really i'm really rooting for you believe me <laughs>